The sermon reading for today is from Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. This can also be found in your paper, paperback Bibles on page 471. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to, to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not only, but knew her not only she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. Uh, I don't know if you have noticed it. You probably have. It's December. We are now officially in full holiday mode, I think, around the city. The 106.7 is playing the worst of all the Christmas music, and the stores are decorated with trees, and the coffee cups have snowflakes on them. Uh, we, are, we are clearly preparing for something, right? The whole nation is preparing for something. And if you think about it, all of this preparation is kind of an echo of a preparation that took a place a long time ago. It's, it's all uh, preparation that began thousands of years ago because of another preparation, this preparation of a young couple who was expecting their first child. Or in the case of our reading today, a, a young man who was not expecting his first child, right? Uh, it, it's kind of interesting. If you think about it, the, the narrative portion of Matthew begins with a man who is preparing for divorce. Um, this is one of those passages that we can tend to kind of breeze through, right? This is just the, the first act of the local Christmas pageant, right? This is one that uh, can, can go right before our eyes. But I'm really thankful that this morning we get a chance to sit down in it and to study it, and to find out what it has to teach us. Because honestly, this text, uh, it does have the power to change the, the rest of our preparation. It has the power to change the way that we prepare over the next few weeks as we approach Christmas and the days that follow. But more than that, I think if we would really look at this text, it, would, it has the potential to change the way we approach our entire lives, right? These first few verses of Matthew, uh, this interaction between Joseph and this angel actually set the stage for everything that Christ came to do. Uh, in these few lines, this passage tells us exactly what Jesus came for, and it tells us how he intends to interact with every person on earth. So that's what I want us to look at today. I want us to see those pieces in this story. I want us to see what this passage has to tell us, first about who Jesus is, and then secondly about who we are, 
And then finally, what he requires of us. So that's where we're going. Who Jesus is, who we are, and what he requires of us. So who is Jesus according to this text? Well, we're looking at Matthew. Uh, We started looking at it last week. The Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the first four books in the New Testament. And each of them uh, tries to tell us the facts about who Jesus is and why we should believe in him. Um, And so the Gospels, they aren't works of fiction, right? They don't read like modern novels. Um, And that's really good for us when we're trying to have questions answered, when we're trying to deal with our skepticism. But it's kind of terrible for us in our drama-obsessed culture. It leaves out a lot of the details that we'd like to read, right? We, our favorite TV shows are, are Empire and The Walking Dead, right? We like drama. We like tension. We like buildup. We like to, to know how people are feeling and how they're reacting. And, and, and Matthew doesn't really tell us that here. Uh, he leaves all of that stuff up to our imagination. So let's think about it for a minute. I mean, let's, let's imagine what this must have been like. So here's Joseph, and he is betrothed. We have a couple of people uh, engaged in here, right? Recently engaged couples in our church, which is cool. Uh, Betrothal is kind of like being engaged, but if you add to it, uh, it's a legally binding contract. So these people are are legally bound to become married. and, And all of a sudden, Joseph has found out that the woman that he is about to marry is pregnant and the baby is not his. Now, it doesn't tell us how he was feeling, but you have to assume he was pretty angry about that, right? He was probably feeling betrayed by that. He was probably feeling a little insecure about that. And Matthew tells us that that Joseph, in all of those emotions, has resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, maybe... (laughs) For some of us, that might be the biggest miracle in this whole story, right? Because I know some of you. And if this happened to you, there would be no chance of a quiet divorce, right? You would find this information out and you'd already be dialing Mari Povich, right? Ready to get the results of that DNA test, reveal it to the whole world. That baby's not mine, right? But no, he resolves to divorce her quietly. It says he's a good man. He's a just man, and so he doesn't want to do something to harm her. He doesn't want to bring any undue pain to her. And and, uh, you add to it that this is a society where having a child outside of marriage is is not uh, just uh, inconvenient, but it actually would have brought shame to their entire family. Uh, It could have even had legal repercussions coming along with it. But Joseph decides to to kind of quietly work through this. And while he is wrestling with this decision, while he's trying to figure out what to do, an angel shows up and speaks to him. And the angel says in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew adds, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God 
with us. The angel says to Joseph, you do not have to go through with your plans for divorce. You, you don't have to, to, to go on with what you were planning because this child is from God. This child is going to be the savior of the world. He's going to be God with us. Now, if you're not a Christian in this room, if you're just visiting because maybe a friend brought you or you got lost on the way to the gym or something like that, if you're, if you're just observing this story, I, I want to acknowledge that this whole thing seems crazy, right? We have virgins who are getting pregnant. <laughs> we have angels who are, are speaking to people. But I don't want you to, to get so distracted by these run-of-the-mill kind of miracles that you, you, you miss out on the truly insane thing that's taking place in this passage. Probably the most stunning words that you find in all of Scripture are right here. When, when the angel says, he will be God with us. Uh, J.I. Packer has a famous book called Knowing God. And if you haven't read it, I think you should. I think every Christian at some point in their life should, should read through that book. Um, but in it, he says that this is the most outrageous claim in all of Christianity, that God became a man. He says, the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. He says, it's here that Jews, Muslims, Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, and a variety of others have to part ways with us. People who have no problem with the other miracles that they read in Scripture, they come to this and they say, no, we can't handle that. And I mean, just think about it. Think about it practically for a second. It is extremely difficult to comprehend this idea. This angel has just told Joseph that God is going to be born as an infant and grow up in his house. I mean, what kind of sense does that make? And, and this wasn't their third or fourth kid. This was their first kid. They have no idea what they're doing, right? We've got some new parents here. It's hard enough as it is. I have, have personally dropped three of my children, right? <laughs> I let at least two of them fall down a flight of stairs. I mean, I, this is hard work, right? This is a ton of pressure. <laughs> Imagine being told that while you are learning to be a parent, that child is God in the flesh. Wow. Practically, it's, it's staggering. But beyond that, the, the theological implications of it, uh, it would take our whole lifetime to, to wrap our mind around what's going on here. I mean, this is the announcement this is God declaring that he has heard the cries of his people, the pleas for rescue that began in the Garden of Eden and have carried on for thousands of years. It's the fulfillment of all the hopes and longings of the world. In Isaiah, the prophet, as he looks around at the sin amongst his people, as he looks around at the 
injustice and the violence and the hatred in the world. As he sees this cycle that seems like it's never going to end, and he writes in chapter 64, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. In this moment, God says, Yes, yes, I will come down. I will literally come down. Or as as C.S. Lewis put it, if you understand what's going on here, it means that that once in the world, there was a stable that had something in it that was bigger than the entire world. Jesus is God with us. And if that's the case, then the rest of the story isn't all that surprising, I guess. The rest of the story actually can be believed. The rest of the story makes sense because if God became a man, then sure, the virgin birth, of course. All the miracles, of course. The atonement, the resurrection, of course. If God became a man, then sure. Why wouldn't any of those other things have happened? And that's what exactly what Matthew is telling us. He's telling us that God has become man, that he has taken on flesh, that he is God with us. But that's not all it says. As much as this passage about naming Jesus can tell us who he is, I think it has more to say about who we are. And that's the second thing I want us to look at this morning. What does this passage say about who we are, about who you are? So the angel tells him his name will be Jesus. Jesus, it means God saves. And he says, you're going to name him this because he will save his people from their sins. I, I really like this. I've, I've thought about this all week long. I mean, I, I just love the fact that, that Jesus was the greatest preacher, right? Even his, his name is, is a sermon. Do you see it right there? His name says God saves. And by being given that name, just his presence is telling us we need to be saved. We need a savior. You need to be saved. Now, I realize that's kind of religious language. And maybe it's not a word that we find ourselves using all that much anymore. It might sound a little bit dated, a little antiquated. You need to be saved. But it's not just a religious concept. The idea that we need to be saved is something we experience all the time. It's something that we all know instinctively. Whether we're going to use those words or not, every single one of us has a hope for something better. Every single one of us, do we not have a longing for something more out of our lives? We have this vision of the way life is supposed to be. And we have a vision of how we're going to get there, how we're going to accomplish those goals. Right? We dream about those things. We we dream about what it's going to be like when we have it. And right now, we angst about it. We stress about it. We worry about it. We worry about our present situation, and we look around for salvation. We look around for something to save us. You know, I talk to a lot of people in Boston, even in our church, people who are 
are really unhappy in their work. I think maybe it's because of this is kind of a city where people often come to get trained. It's people who are starting out in their careers. I, I hear a lot of people who are seeing their peers do better than they are, and they feel frustrated. They feel inadequate. They, they say things like, you know, if I could just get to, to X position, if I could just get to X salary, if I could just be here, then things would be good. Then I'd be valued. Then I'd be respected. Then I'll be financially secure. What they're saying is that thing is going to fulfill what's lacking in my life. If I can just get there. I hear it all the time, and the story sounds a hundred different ways. You know, sometimes it's, it's not about work, but it's about finding the right person to date or to marry. It's about the right political candidate winning an election. Or even something as simple as, you know, finding a good apartment to live in in this neighborhood. But the core of the story is always the same. If I can just fix this thing, if I can just work out this thing, then my life will be all right. Then my life will finally work. And it's always that way. We're always hoping for that next thing to fill what's lacking. That next thing to fix what is wrong in this broken world. And of course it doesn't. It never does. And that's why this angel says the child will be named Jesus. Because he says he is actually going to do it. This child is actually going to save. Now, when Joseph heard that name, he probably had some sense of what that meant. He probably had some idea of what that salvation was going to look like, right? It, it wasn't like... Um, you know, the angel didn't come down and tell him you need to name your child like French toast or something. You know, it wasn't some weird name. He, this was a common name, Jesus. Lots of people were named Jesus. Jesus was a name that meant God saves. And it was a name lots of Jewish people chose for their children because it reflected the hope they had in a coming Messiah. It reflected the hope that they had that someday God would come and save them. There was this expectation built up throughout the prophets in the Old Testament that God was going to send a Messiah. He was going to send a king who would come and usher in God's kingdom, one who would finally set all things right. Probably one of the most famous passages is Isaiah chapter 9, and it says it like this. It says, Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. They have this expectation of a coming king. People name their kid Jesus all the time. And that is what the angel wants him to remember. That's why when the angel shows up, the first thing he says to Joseph is he calls him son of David. 
right? He reminds him that he's from this royal line, that he's from this royal family, and that the prophesied Messiah is going to come through him. But what he couldn't have possibly gotten, the thing Joseph could not have possibly understood here, was that Jesus had come to save his people not from cultural oppression. He hadn't come to save his people from the Roman government. No, he had come to save his people from what they really needed saving from. He came to save us from sin. That's what the angel wants us to see. The angel is trying to tell us that sin is our biggest problem. That sin is the thing at the root of all our problems. That that sin is the reason behind all of the oppression and injustice. That it's the reason for our lives constantly feeling lacking. It's the thing that sends us constantly searching. Because we were created to know God. We were created to live in relationship with God. We were created to, to know Him and be known by Him to look to Him for fulfillment for our souls, but instead, we look to ourselves. Instead, because of our sin, we look to everything around us. And because of sin, we are constantly hungry and never full. We're always looking, but never finding. And despite all of our searching, despite all of our our, our seeking, we only get further and further away from God, not closer to Him. And it's exactly that sin that makes the incarnation necessary. Do you see that? Sin is what makes the incarnation necessary. Because if we only needed to be saved from a bad government, there are other ways to do that, right? Read the book of Exodus, you see. God can rescue his people from an evil government without coming down. But in order to save us from sin, God had to become one of us. Because we could never find our way, because we could never find our way to him, he had to come and show us the way. He had to come and lead us there. And he did that by by living the life that we couldn't live, by paying the penalty for our sins through his death. The reason why he became man was because he had to for us. He became God with us for us. Think about that. The infinite the holy, the all-powerful God came to earth because we needed him to. He did it because of who you are, a sinner who needs a Savior. He did it because without him, you would be forever blind to your real need. Without him, you would forever keep chasing after those false saviors. Without this, without this moment, this most impossible thing, the most impossible of all miracles, there would be no hope. 
But this tells us there is hope. Not only is there hope, but there is a Savior. Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's who we are. That's who you are. You are a poor sinner who needs a Savior. That's what it tells us. But there's one last piece of this story that we, we don't want to miss. There's one last thing that connects these two facts about who, who Jesus is and who we are. And, uh, and we see in looking at it, it shows us what, what Jesus requires of us. Uh, so we got a lot of kids in this church, uh, as you can tell by the stampede that runs out before the sermon. And we got a lot of kids who have, have pretty cool names, right? Have you, I don't know if you've seen the roles uh, at our kids' check-in, but, but our kids have some, some well-thought-out, solid names. And uh, that's because our parents put a lot of thought into those names. In fact, I've never met a parent who doesn't put much thought into the names of their child, right? Either you're going with some family name that's been passed down for generations, or you, you're searching for something that you think will be meaningful to you and to them, or, or if you can't think of anything, you're at least, you know, searching the internet and looking at all these lists. Uh, but people think about the names they want to give their kids. They, it's a big deal. Even today, it's a big deal. Uh, David Ewan, right? He's our, probably one of our newest babies. David is a very solid biblical name, right? Uh, I know that they chose it. It means beloved, I think. Um, but not only that, I heard from Sarah that they, they named this little guy, uh, David, because it works in English and Portuguese, because Sarah is Brazilian, and they wanted a name that would work both ways. So I think that's great job, buddy. And he's saying amen, I can hear. Um, parents put a lot of thought into the names of their kids. But back then, naming your child was even a more significant act than it is for us today. Back then, the name that you gave your child was was a declaration of the hope you had for them. It was something that, that defined them. It was a kind of prophecy over their lives. Naming a child was, was a huge deal. And, and notice here in our passage that, that when the angel shows up, he doesn't say, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit... What do you think we should call him? Right? <laughs> that's, that's not the approach. No, he says, here's the name. God has named him already. It's Jesus. And you don't have a say. <laughs> I'm taking this from you. His name is Jesus. In other words, when Jesus comes, uh, I think we see a paradigm for the way he comes to all of us. He comes on his own terms. He's not a savior who is going to be fashioned according to our preferences. He's not a savior who comes and is, conforms himself to what we want. If Jesus really is who the scriptures claimed, if he really is Emmanuel, if he's God with us, then it doesn't matter if we like it or don't like it, does it? 
It doesn't matter if we, we think this is a good idea or not a good idea. It's a, it's, it's a reality we have to face. If this truly occurred, then the incarnation is a fact that we've got to reckon with. That in Christ, God has come to be with us. Whether we like it or not. Or let me put it another way. When Matthew says that this Jesus is coming to save his people, that he is God, what he is saying is Jesus is the only one who can save his people. There can be no other way. God has shown up to redeem his people from sin. He has shown up to make you a part of his people. That's the plan. He has come to take you out of, of, of pursuing those false saviors. He's come to transform your life, to give you a new identity as a part of his kingdom. That's what he's coming to do. And so the question that this text asks us is the same question that the angel is asking Joseph, in a sense. It says, okay, look, guys, the prophecies have been fulfilled. God has come. God is with us. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond? For Joseph to believe this, it was a pretty costly decision for him. The passage tells us that he was a, a righteous man, that he was a man who was well-respected in his community. And for him to go along with this story, that meant that he was going to have to bear the shame, that he was going to have to bear the disgrace of, of being assumed as an adulterer, right? Of being uh, assumed as a sinner. But in this moment, Joseph... He chose to trust God. He chose to trust God would be a better savior for him than his standing in society would ever be. What about you? How are you going to respond to this this week? For some of us, following Jesus will have major consequences. It might cost you pleasure. It might cost you money. It might cost you something bigger than that. It might cost you the thing that you have been dreaming of, the thing that you have been longing for. Maybe that's your story right now. Maybe you're in this room and you, you would say that you're a Christian, but really you're just a Christian in, in word only. You say that you follow Jesus, but when it comes down to it, the thing that you're really hoping to save you is something else. And you're unwilling to let go of that thing. Well, this declaration, this naming of Jesus, it tells us that the call to follow Christ is a call to repent. The call to follow Christ is a call to turn to him, to give up those false saviors, to give up those things and follow him. So how do we do that? That's the last thing I want to ask. How, how can we give up our hopes and dreams for Jesus? How can we give up those things that we really want? Well, because of what we see right here. Because we see in this passage 
that God has already given up far more for you. Jesus was at the Father's in eternal glory with the Father. That he was infinitely powerful and happy. And for you, he gave that up. For you, he entered this world and became a powerless baby. He lived life under the consequences of the law. He became a rejected Messiah, scorned and hated by the world, and he was crucified on the cross for you. He gave up everything for you to make you his own. He gave up everything so that you could rest securely in the presence of God. And if you believe that, if the Holy Spirit would open your eyes up to see that this week, it would transform you. It has to transform us, right? When we recognize that Christ has given up everything for us, then there is nothing too big. There's nothing that we won't give up for him. There's no cost too great. There's no promise too good. There's nothing that we would consider over him. Because he's Jesus. He's the savior of sinners. He's God with us, for us. Let's pray.